I had a conversation while I was in London this week about um, the war in Ukraine with someone who thought that, of course, uh, Ukraine was to blame and that Russia was in the right here. And I hadn't heard that opinion in a while because it's tough to square that opinion with stories like we heard today. This one, for instance, a team of experts commissioned by the UN has found evidence of war crimes committed during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The team leader is Eric Murs. He says civilians and non-military targets have paid a high cost throughout the war. The Commission has visited 27 towns and settlements and has interviewed more than 150 victims and witnesses. We have inspected sites of destruction, graves, places of detention and torture, as well as weapon remnants, and consulted a large number of documents and reports. War crimes. That's what Russia committed in Ukraine. War crimes. So it's hard to justify the invasion, no matter how you put it. Meantime, a Kremlin-orchestrated referendum, referenda, got underway in occupied regions of Ukraine today that uh, are going to try to make them part of Russia. Uh, you know, the whole thing's a complete sham, but they're, they're carrying ballots to apartment blocks accompanied by gun-toting police. Clearly, I mean, these are areas, Donetsk, Luhansk, maybe, Zaporizhia, Kherson, not really. You know, these are not part of Russia. Uh, they certainly have. They haven't been in it a long time. Uh, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the territories in question are indisputably part of Ukraine. The United States will never recognize uh, this territory or as anything other than part of Ukraine because it belongs to the people of Ukraine. Uh, that is the White House Press Secretary. Uh, this all comes in what has been a strange week if you've been watching this war for a long time. So after what appears to be a lot of internal pressure, Vladimir Putin announces a partial mobilization this week, uh, which will mean approximately 300,000 people. Now, the way this works is these are people who've already done a year of military training, men between 18 and I think late 50s. Is that how old it is? Now, of course, a lot of people don't want to go fight in this war because it seems like such a complete and utter waste of time and waste of life. So Men, not tons, but enough, are fleeing, either trying to get out of the country um, or protesting. There's been protests against this as well. And it all raises some interesting questions. Um, now, clearly, they're going to crack down on those who don't want to be there. Apparently, uh, this bill that that there's tougher punishment for those refusing a military summons for those or those who desert. Apparently, those who've been arrested are being sent right to the uh, Right, are handed draft papers right there and then. So, you know, this this is serious business in Russia if you're of a fighting age, so to speak. Women are cannot be conscripted, by the way, in Russia. But is Vladimir Putin losing his grip here? You know, he, he's looked so incredibly incompetent through all this. Are, are, are people getting restless on the inside? Is that what's going on? Uh, who better to ask than Catherine Stoner? She's a senior fellow senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. She's the author and editor of several books on contemporary Russia, including the most recent Russia Resurrected, the power, its power and purpose in a new global order. She's Canadian as well, to top it all off. Thank you for your time tonight. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, even the title of your book, I mean, it seems like it's power and purpose in the new global order seems to be shifting every day. What do you make of, of President Putin's decision to issue this partial mobilization? Well, it's, uh, I think, a bit of an act of desperation and an admission that things were not going uh, uh, as well as he'd anticipated in, uh, on the battlefield. And so uh, with the recent gains that the Ukrainian army has made in the Kharkiv uh, region and beginning to 
um, push back some of the territory that Russia gained earlier this year um, and and uh, and reclaim it. Um, he's you know come to the conclusion and under some pressure from uh, those who are closest to him. Uh, feeling that he's not doing all he could to make this a victory. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, watching an authoritarian system uh, to note that there are these pressures uh, on the leader. And um, now he's having to do something he's very reticent to do for fear of social backlash. And, and that is what is being called a partial mobilization. Uh, but it's a little more haphazard than partial. Yeah, I, I, Talk, talk about that, because I think people have always felt that we've obviously talked about Putin's inner circle and those who could pressure him and those the many who can't. Um, what are we watching here? Who is putting on this pressure? And, and where is where is this this idea that somehow he's not done enough coming from other than the reality on the ground? So I think it's coming from a, a couple of different places. First of all, it's dragging on. Um, and uh, I think there was an anticipation at the beginning of this conflict that it would be relatively fast. Uh, the plan was to take Kyiv, remember, um, quickly, and um, and that didn't happen. Um, so then a withdrawal, uh, and remember, we, we, you know, the numbers were somewhere around 130 to 150,000 troops who had lined up uh, on the border in, in uh, February and who began to deploy February 24th. So uh, that's a lot of people um, not being able to take Kyiv. Uh, was, uh, I think, a disappointment um, and a surprise. And uh, then having to, being able to take southern parts of Russia around Kherson, for example, relatively quickly, but a big battle for um, the city of Mariupol um, with the Azov battalion uh, uh, fighting on Ukraine's behalf. Um, We can talk about the prisoner swap also that just happened then Mm -hmm. um, when some of those guys were involved. Um, and so I think some of the pressure has come from people, uh, some of the elites closest to him who are very pro this war and want want to win and worry that they're not winning um, and that the casualty rate's high. And so this would be the head of the Security Council, Patrushev, um, the head of the FSB, the head of the SVR, that's internal security and uh, like their CIA and the head of their, their FBI. Um, and, um, and so I think that's really where it's coming from internally, externally, you know, we saw this meeting of the Shanghai cooperation organization, the SCO that took place in central Asia last weekend, where, uh, evidently Mr. Xi of China and Modi of India were shared concerns, uh, about the war. Um, and, uh, so I think that's, that's partly where the pressure is coming from. And, and then. Now we see some pressure from society, but perhaps a different kind. It has been, I mean, it's been strange to watch because it. you wonder what Russia could now throw at this that would make, mm-hmm. that would be effective because obviously mobilization of people and just putting people on the front line, it didn't work the first time around. It's hard mm-hmm. to imagine it'll work now. So it, it's hard to figure out Putin's game plan from afar in all this other than nuclear saber, saber rattling. Yeah, so I was recently this morning, I, I was on a, a, a different call. Um, and, uh, and one of the participants in that call made the point that, you know, there was a kind of conflict between the technocracy of the Russian military that actually knows how to fight wars, and then the autocracy 
um, the personalistic rule of, of Putin. And, and you know, they, they didn't go into this uh, battle particularly well prepared and the, and the plan was not kind of widely shared. So they didn't have some of the things that you would normally expect. And we have seen, for example, in Syria, quite worked out with the military uh, in terms of transportation or taking out, you know, Ukrainian air uh, power. Um, so, uh, you know, this is this is often how an autocracy works, right? Um, uh, not not with regard to sort of rules of of uh, or or uh, processes that have that have proven to work in the past. So, I guess the thought is by by bringing in more people, and it will take time to train these people. These are not, you know, Russia doesn't maintain a reserve system like um, we here in the United States do, where you know people would go in for monthly trainings on their weapons. Um, instead, what, what they're supposedly doing and what the law says they can do is call up people who have served in the military in the past. And so Russia ended its conscription system that it had under the Soviet system um, a couple of years ago, and they have transitioned to what they refer to as a contract uh, army, but it's a professional military, and they do have a small number of conscripts. Um, but those conscripts only serve a year, and the, they they are not trained on sophisticated um, weapon systems because it takes a long time to learn those things, right? So, so if what they're doing is they're calling back people who've served a year or two years in the past, and the past can be all the way up to 20 or 30 years ago, evidently, given the ages that they're recruiting up to or drafting up to or calling in for this mobilization, then it is difficult to see exactly how effective they'll be on any of the new weapon systems. Um, it's unlikely that they would form new units and instead would be filling in for the casualties that that um, have already been suffered. So um, it is a bit puzzling to see that this will have some kind of great effect. If it does have effect, I mean, it, we won't see it, I think, for two, three, four months. And so the Ukrainians are really feeling pressed to consolidate their gains now and perhaps to take advantage uh, of the situation now and try and push further into reclaiming some of that territory in the East. No doubt where these referenda that they're holding, we remember uh, <laughs> the referenda in, in Crimea yeah. back in 2014. Uh, I remember similar yeah. votes in Donetsk when I was there in 2014 as well. Mm -hmm. uh, this would be part of the same plan, I imagine, by the Russians to consolidate yeah. and, and sort of reality on the ground, change the reality on the ground. Yeah, well, it is an unreality, though, right? They don't actually control all of these um, <laughs> these provinces that they're holding referenda in. So they don't control all of Donetsk or Luhansk or Kherson or uh, uh, the southern provinces. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. they, they, they certainly control some of them and more in some places than others, but not all of them. So, you know, no one really except, uh, you know, Nicaragua, the usual suspects, right, Syria, uh, maybe North Korea are going to mm. recognize Russian sovereignty over these areas. Um, they're obviously still part of Ukraine and, and the referenda are taking place in a war zone. Um, I heard this morning that, um, you know, ballots are rather haphazardly distributed and there was one ballot for a family. Um, you know, a voter. So yeah. this right. is ridiculous, right? And it's just uh, supposed to give it some sort of legitimacy. There's no option to uh, stay in Ukraine. It's basically, do you want to be an 
independent part, an uh, independent state, and then be part of the Russian Federation? That's essentially the question. So yes or no. Um, yeah. And I'm going to predict right now, Ben, that those referenda are going to pass. Uh, yes, <laughs> one I, way I, or the I, other. I, I'm figuring Saddam Hussein numbers here, 102 percent in the like. Yes. Uh, of, yeah, they're uh, going to be high. Yeah, but you know this represents nothing um, given the given the conditions under which these are being held. Catherine Stoner is with us this half hour. She's a senior fellow at the Freeman Smogli Institute for International Studies. We're talking about uh, the week that has been in Russia and the impact it's having on the war in Ukraine. Uh, lots of talk about, uh, we heard it today, there's an article in the Globe and Mail here in Canada about uh, a senior advisor to President Zelensky talking about uh, having to look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. There is a new crisis um, in Eastern Europe. Is that where do, the, where do the parallels come in? Is it that serious, do you think? Well, I think the parallel that there uh, that that people who are making reference to it are, are pointing to is is um, you know we're coming close to um, the use of nuclear weapons or so it so it would seem right in 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 the Cuban Missile Crisis it was Nikita Khrushchev, so this is not the Soviet period. Um, there is no communist party. In fact, there's no real party that that survives independent of Putin himself. Um, he has a different source of power. Um, so I think the parallel is really just one of, gosh, he's saying he'll use nuclear weapons in the way that Khrushchev said he was putting them in, you know, in Cuba in retaliation for us putting them in, in Turkey. And, and so, I, but I don't see a huge parallel beyond that because what, um, what, what I think Putin is, is saying is that, look, one reason we're holding this, these referenda today in these four regions that we that we you know partially occupy in Ukraine is that should they become parts of the Russian homeland then our nuclear and and I'm going to predict that they will right mm -hmm. that's what they're going to declare our nuclear doctrine that is Russian nuclear doctrine says we will never use nuclear weapons first unless the homeland is threatened existentially threatened so that's not defined anywhere. What does that mean? It's pretty discretionary. And so um, this would, you know, give them a leg to stand on for, for the use of what we think would be tactical nuclear weapons, which are those that can be delivered on a, on a missile or projection system of less than 300 kilometers. I should mention the former president of Russia, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, who's now become a rabid nationalist, um, is talking about strategic nuclear weapons and using those, and those go farther and are bigger. Um, so not clear what the implication is there, right? is that we, he would hit somewhere in Europe or even in the United States. But but it's a dangerous moment. <laughs> it is a dangerous one. When you see it from the outside, it just reeks of, of just absolute chaos in the Kremlin now, in some senses, this idea that Putin was somehow a master strategist, it seems to have all gone so incredibly wrong for for this this war effort in Ukraine. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, is he yeah. is he going to survive this? Do you think is I mean, are, the, are there legitimate threats? Now we have this social unrest, I know it may not last, but are there is will he survive this? Do you think? So um, uh this this is probably the most vulnerable he's been certainly in the 22 years that that he has been either president or prime minister of of russia um but it isn't obvious who would replace him um so this is a 
there's a system on paper and then there's what happens in practice. And um, so the vulnerability is really not so much, and this is true generally of modern autocracies, it's not so much from social upheaval, although you know that makes for great television, we actually don't see a lot of social revolutions that produce democracies uh, anymore. Instead, we tend to see elite coups and, and only maybe you know 30% of, of uh, autocrat, uh, autocracies fall because of, of people coming out on the streets. Um, and usually uh, an autocracy like this is replaced by another form of autocracy. So it's really, it's really, I think, the power agencies, um, and that is the the Security Council, the head of the internal security, SVR, external security, so the FSB, SVR. It's these people who, uh, if he loses them, um, and um, then these people are, are, you know, have are very pro the war, um, then they may try to shuffle him out. Um, and then a group of three or four of them would try to run the government, perhaps with a more uh, humane face, like the mayor of Moscow, Sabianin. So this could happen. And we are starting to see sort of signs of a little bit of elite disagreement and infighting and a little criticism coming out even on television. Um, but I wouldn't overplay that. Uh, it, it's, um, that's, that is the most likely scenario, but how likely a scenario it is, I think it's still, uh, it's still, you know, less than, than 20%, uh, possibility. But it, this is the first time we've seen, you know, the sort of aura of competence that Putin projects to his own people and, and, you know, around the world, uh, uh, so baldly, um, broken. And I imagine whoever would replace him, that does not mean the end of the war in Ukraine. Catherine Stoner, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much.